The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. Some of you young people might not know what an encyclopedia is. All you know is what Wikipedia is. Well, when I was a child, we had a set of encyclopedias at our house. They were actual books with pages. Big set of reference books. Tons and tons of information in a set of encyclopedias. I don't know how many words it took to build a complete set of whatever encyclopedia you may have had. But I do know that the only letters they used were the alphabet. I don't know how many words, but I know they only needed 26 letters. Even with the vast amounts of information, they didn't have to look outside the alphabet. It had everything that was needed. It was sufficient. This morning, as we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, we are going to be amazed at the power and the promises of God. And yet, as vast as they are, as massive as they are, you can't find them outside of Jesus Christ. He's all you need. He is sufficient. Let's read verse 1. I know we talked about it last week, but let's read verse 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You may remember from last week that Peter, at the end of verse 1, unapologetically called Jesus God. And as he finishes his greeting in verse 2 with this prayer wish, he, he hopes that grace and peace abound in their lives through God and through the knowledge of Jesus. And part of verse 2 is identical to the greeting he left in 1 Peter as well. He mentions grace and peace. We know what these are, but we need to be reminded. If we ever get tired of hearing about grace and peace, we've got big problems. Grace is the unmerited favor of God towards us. It's undeserved kindness. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You're not owed it. And yet God in his kindness bestows grace good things upon us. And really it's a one-way street. 
We don't, we don't give God grace. We're not gracious to Him. He gives grace to us. Generously pours out His grace through Christ. And the same applies with peace. You may remember that peace is not limited to the absence of strife and war and trouble. You remember the readers that Peter wrote to. In 1 Peter, they had already suffered some persecution. And now in 2 Peter, if they are not facing it already, they're, they're getting ready to face the danger of false teachers. And yet Peter's praying for peace to abound in their lives. How can Peter do that? Is that sort of a backhanded slap in the face, a reminder that you're really not at peace right now? No. Peter understood that true peace is not dependent upon easy circumstances. True peace comes from having a peaceful relationship with God in your life through faith in His Son. Peace is having a calm spirit within, no matter how turbulent it is without. Because you know that nothing this life can bring, nothing in this world can change the fact that if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're a child of God. That's true peace. And Peter has a heartfelt desire that these two wonderful spiritual resources, grace and peace, might possibly be multiplied more and more in their lives. You say, but they've already trusted the Lord. How in the world can grace and peace abound more and more? Notice the end of the verse. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace can abound more and more through knowledge. Knowledge is a key word here. I mentioned last week it's one of the major themes throughout the letter. Peter didn't mention knowledge much at all in, in, in his first letter. Just a handful of references to it. In fact, he never used this exact word at all. And so now we're already, we're just into verse 2, and he's mentioning this very, very important word which does two things. One, it foreshadows what a major theme is going to be. Knowledge of the truth will guard against heresy. Knowledge of the truth will protect against false teaching. But there's more here than Peter's simply bringing it up early. And it's the word itself is a beautiful word. It's an intense form of the word knowledge that refers to rich knowledge, full knowledge. It has the idea of a more complete knowledge. One lexicon said it, it speaks to a more thorough participation in the acquiring of knowledge on the part of the learner. I think we might use the word invested in it. It's a knowledge that you're invested in. It's more than academic. It's more than intellectual. It's more than brain power. It's a rich, a rich knowledge that you have an invested, settled relationship with that is life-changing. Practical. I have some knowledge of cars, but you don't want me working on yours. I can drive one and I can pump gas and that's about it. I can take your temperature and give you Tylenol, but I'm not a doctor. 
A doctor has a more invested, life-changing knowledge of the human body than I do. If we carry those ideas into this, some people know about God. They might be able to rattle off the books of the Bible, list the Ten Commandments, and alphabetize the apostles. And, you know, we sort of sit back and, wow. But they've never invested themselves in God's truth to gain a fuller, richer knowledge of God so that it's life-changing. We're not talking about trivial things. As Christians, we don't want to know about God. We want to know God in a life-changing way. We have to have an invested participation with God's knowledge that grows and grows into a richer, more complete understanding of Him. And then we will be more and more like Christ every day. Not to mention that grace and peace abound through that rich knowledge. So if you're a fan of grace and peace, you need to be a fan of growing in the knowledge of God. Not in false teaching. Grace and peace do not flow from the faucet of heresy. Gr uh, false teaching will not increase your knowledge. It will not make you fruitful. It will not make you more like Christ. You won't be more mature. It will hurt your service to the Lord. And so we must know the Bible. Later in chapter 1, Peter will urge us in verse 19. He says, you do well to take heed to it. Like a lamp in a dark place. Invest yourself in the Word of God so that you have a more complete knowledge of Him. We don't need any teaching that's incompatible with the Bible. God's already given us everything we need to have a rich knowledge of Him. He's given us everything we need to live and serve Him. We don't need anything extra. And that's really where verse 3 and 4 start to come into play. Verse 3 and 4 are verses that humble a preacher. They are extremely deep and powerful and encouraging. And in them we see the vastness of God's power and promises towards us. And one writer made the point, it made me chuckle as I was studying this. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Peter was so enthusiastic about the truths in verse 3 and 4 that his grammar was terrible. It's, it, it's really difficult, the transition from verse 2 to verse 3. It's not the easiest transition. But the point is, and we see the point in verse 3 and 4, is that God has already given us everything we need to grow in Him and please Him and serve Him. Look at verse 3 again. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We'll stop there. The idea of God giving us this. This is not your normal common word for giving. It's a little more official, we might say. There's a little more formality with this word. 
I like the way one author described it. He said, this word always carries a certain regal sense describing an act of large-handed generosity. This isn't your grandparent giving you a quick birthday present. This is more like an official ceremony. You had to wear your belt. You might even have to put on a tie. This is an official, this is a formal thing where you are given extravagant, overwhelming gifts that humble you. Gifts that are lasting, that are abiding, we would even say permanent. Once you receive these generous gifts from God, He's not taking them back. The fact that He gave them, the results and the effects are going to continue. So you don't have to worry about losing them. But Peter did qualify what those gifts are. Notice he didn't just say that God has given us all things and stop. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The word life here. God is the only reason anybody is alive today. There are atheists that woke up this morning because of the grace of God. They may deny it, but it doesn't change the truth. But the life that Peter's referring to here is not just physical life. It has more to do with spiritual life. This is our eternal spiritual life, the new life that God graciously gave us when we repented and trusted Christ. When we do that, we are inwardly born a child of God, spiritually born a child of God, forgiven of our sins, made a new creation. And Peter says, all things that pertain to that, God gave you. How wonderful is that? That's why salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. God gives everything we need that pertains to that. He doesn't just, he doesn't almost give us everything and then expect us to, to sort of run with it from there and take over from there. He doesn't almost give us life and expect us to work for it the rest of the way. God generously and graciously gives all that is needed for life. Peter also says godliness. This is a really interesting word because even though it's translated this way, godliness, it's actually not related to the word God at all. It has more the idea of a proper respect. A, a well-directed reverence. One lexicon said that it does not imply an inward inherent holiness. It actually, uh, it is actually an externalized piety. In fact, the word godliness here, it, it was not used strictly in religious settings. It was not just a religious word. It could refer to proper respect given to a lot of different things. Yes, towards God, but pagans would even use it towards proper respect toward their gods. And it was used when someone had a, a proper reverence to the emperor or family members or laws of the land or judges. It's just, it's a, it's a respect for the way things should be, almost, we would say. One biblical example of this is in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where Paul talks about how widows should be taken care of. 
He brings up the, what we might call just the, the value structure of a home. And he says this, and you're going to hear the word godliness, and it's the same word. Paul says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. It's the same word. Paul was saying that if a, a, a widow has a child or a grandchild, that person needs to show proper respect. Those family members need to respect the, the way a home is set up and respect those value structures. And if they do have that respect, it's going to show outwardly. It's going to lead to a change in their actions. And so by coupling these two words together of life and then proper respect, Peter's emphasizing here the total and complete change, both inwardly and outwardly, that God brings to your life. Our life that God gives us at salvation is not necessarily an outward thing. It's spiritual. It's internal. And yet it must change us externally. It must change the outwardly. And so Peter has told us in verse 3, God has already given us everything we need for spiritual life and showing proper respect. Why would we look anywhere else? I think there's a parallel to this in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul mentions something similar. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, it's where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul didn't say that we work for our salvation, and he didn't mean that. He said we work it out. And that the terms used there were used in ancient mining practices. The picture is, is of a miner digging down into the earth and bringing to the surface those resources, those minerals that were deposited way down deep. He didn't put them there. He just brings them to the surface. And that's where they can benefit other people. That's the idea of our salvation. When we're saved, God gives you all the resources you need to be fruitful, to serve Him, to be a blessing to others, to bring Him glory. And with His continued help, we work it out. Because God's already worked it in. He gives us both the desire and the ability to please Him. That's what Paul said in Philippians. And the way Peter said it, was that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So before we move on from here, we must understand the sufficiency and the fullness of God's gifts. Especially in light of this letter that warns against false teaching. Since God has already given us everything we will ever need for spiritual life and godliness, we have no reason to look elsewhere. He's already given it. We don't need anything else. So do not ever turn away from God's Spirit, from God's truth, from God's Word. No matter how popular a philosophy may be, no matter how powerful it claims to be, no matter how promising it, it may look. The things that God has given you, notice at the first part of verse 3, He gave 
with his divine power. How powerful can something be? It can't match the divine power of God. The same power that spoke the worlds into existence, that crumbled the walls of Jericho, that kept Jonah alive in a fish, that power has graciously given you all you need. And notice at the end of verse 3, we're going to see that word knowledge again. This happens through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, or by glory and virtue, we could even say. This word knowledge here, it's the same very intense word for knowledge that we had in verse 2. That rich knowledge, full knowledge, the invested knowledge. And so listen. These amazing gifts that God gives to his divine power only come through the knowledge of Christ. He's the only one. God's power works through Christ, period. Because remember what verse 1 taught us? Jesus is God. And so all things that pertain to life and godliness are only offered in the knowledge of Jesus, the one who called us. And at the end of the verse, Peter says, to glory and virtue, or your translation may even say, by his own glory and virtue. Peter's going to bring up the Mount of Transfiguration experience later in chapter 1. That time on the mountain where he and James and John saw Jesus Christ actually transfigured into his full glory. But remember, that was, that was just a preview for only those three men. What about everybody else that missed out on that opportunity, right? What about us? What about the other apostles? Listen, the divine glory and excellent virtue of Jesus Christ were always on display. Every moment of his life, they were calling, drawing, convicting, attracting people to himself. Why do you think so many people flocked to that man? People that were hated by others, that were mistreated, that were outcasts, that were shames of society, they came to Jesus like bugs to a light. Jesus said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John wrote in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John wrote that even though he didn't even mention the Mount of Transfiguration experience in his gospel. And yet he said, we beheld his glory. John saw the glory and virtue of Christ every day, not just on the mountain one time. He experienced God in the flesh through the glory and virtue that was Christ, and through that glory and virtue, God has given us something else. Look at verse 4 now. Whereby, probably referring back to that glory and virtue of Christ, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. 
Peter used the same word for the giving here that he did in the last verse. The, the large-handed, official, formal generosity. God has officially bestowed upon us exceeding great and precious promises. I read one author say that this is the only time the superlative of great is used in the New Testament. Literally, it's greatest. I didn't take the time to look through the hundreds of times the word great was used, but that's what he said. That's why it's translated exceeding great. These aren't just great promises. They're the greatest, the exceeding great promises. And they're precious, valuable. The word precious is the same word Peter used in, chapter, or in uh, his first letter to describe the precious blood of Christ that bought us. The promises that Peter mentions here of God, no doubt they involve salvation. No doubt they involve the promise of his return when our salvation is made complete. And these greatest and most precious promises of God are only available because of the glory and virtue of Christ. They are only available because God became a man. As you know Jesus, you inherit these promises. They will not be given through any other person, through any other philosophy, or through any other religion. They're not offered outside of Christ. We'll spend all of eternity learning about these promises, trying to grasp them more, more fully about what they mean and what they do to us and for us. But Peter ends the verse with these two amazing results that are both connected. These two results that happen when we receive these promises. Look at the first one. Halfway through verse 4. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Just, just let that sink in for a second. that you might be partakers of the divine nature. The word might here does not imply doubt, so don't read it that way. It, it indicates purpose or result. What Peter is saying is when you trust Christ, one result of that is that you become a partaker of God's divine nature. The word partaker means to share something in common with another. It's, it speaks of fellowship. It speaks of association. It speaks of companionship. So believers in Jesus Christ share in God's nature. It doesn't mean we're no longer humans, and it doesn't mean we become little gods. But since when we trust Christ... God's Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, seals us, indwells us. We become intimately connected with the God of the universe. We share in His very own nature. 
I can't begin to fathom that. We've already talked about part of what that means in that he's given us eternal life. We already mentioned that he's given us all things needed for life. I told you these verses humble a preacher. I cannot fully comprehend the vastness and the power of this promise to share in God's nature through Christ we fellowship with the divine the second result of these promises really complements the first and they make a whole lot of sense when you think about them together it's logical that if we share in the divine nature, then we must have escaped corruption, right? Look at the end of the verse. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Word corruption, it refers to destruction. It refers to deterioration, decay. It was used to describe spoiled milk, uh, a ruined economy, and the decay of a corpse. It's gross. It's filth. It's decay. Peter's going to use this word three times in chapter 2 when he is berating false teachers. And the idea of the word corruption, it, it can be natural or physical, like a corpse. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's also definitely moral. This world is morally corrupt. Because of the lust. Because of the sinful desires that people pursue. This is a filthy, unethical, decaying world. Morally. How many of you are sick of looking at headlines or watching the news? It's disgusting. Not only are people pursuing sinful passions but sometimes and a lot of times they're praised for it sinful things aren't even considered sinful there are agendas that are pushed on our society that are totally ungodly and people are praised for following them and we are belittled for standing against them if we disagree then we're looked at like we're the problem this world is circling the drain it is corrupt, but by the grace of God, believers have escaped that. So we have to rise above the cesspool of moral filth and not be dragged down by the moral decay in this world, but rise to the glory and virtue of our Savior. God's given us everything we need to do that. That's part of sharing in His divine nature. Since we share in that, we've been rescued from the filth. We've been given everything needed for life and godliness. So let's not be like the dog who returns to his own vomit, which is how Peter's going to describe false teachers in chapter 2. It's a pretty disgusting picture. There's definitely the idea of moral corruption here, and Peter mentions the lust. But this word can also refer to physical decay, deterioration. 
isn't that where this world is headed because of sin? Moral corruption will lead to physical destruction. Look over at chapter 3, what Peter's going to say about the end of this world. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 10 through 14. Verse 10 of chapter 3, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that, seeing then that, these, uh, that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation? And guess what word this is? Godliness. Proper respect. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless... We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Not only have we escaped the moral corruption of this world, but we've been delivered from the destruction that moral corruption brings. We're forgiven. We await a new heaven, new earth, where righteousness will live forever. We've escaped. We've escaped corruption. We await redemption. Redemption's much better than corruption. Think about it. If we share in God's divine nature, which is pure, which is eternal, then of necessity we must be delivered from corruption and decay because how could God's nature suffer destruction? How could God's nature suffer decay? He'll redeem us completely. How incredible are God's power and the promises that he's given us. Everything we need for life, for godliness, sharing in his nature, delivering us from corruption, and yet as unsearchable as they are. You can't find them outside of Jesus Christ. He is sufficient like those authors and researchers of the encyclopedia that didn't look outside the alphabet to make up all the words in the whole set, you cannot find the power and promises of God offered to you outside of Jesus Christ. He is who you need. So you have a choice, and the choice is Jesus or everything else, or anything else. Only Jesus where you can enjoy the grace and peace of God. Only in Jesus can you come to a richer, fuller knowledge of God. Only in Him can you inherit the power and promises we've been talking about. Without Christ, you will continue to rot. Physically, morally, spiritually, destined for an eternity in hell away from God's presence. But 
God made a way of escape for you. I read this quote this week, and I really liked the way this man said this. He said, man becomes either regenerate or degenerate. Either his spiritual and moral powers are subject to slow decay and death, or he rises to full participation in the divine. So will you be dragged down by the filth of this world? Or will you trust in Jesus and escape and receive the power and promises of God? Don't look for them anywhere else. They're not, they're not offered. And if you've done that, grow, grow into a richer, fuller knowledge of him. Wouldn't you want to learn more about a God who's given you such great things? He's already given us all we need. So do not individually or as a church ever seek to look outside the scope of what God's already done for us and given to us. Let's stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your power and your promises that you have given us through Jesus Christ. And we pray that our church and our own individual lives will rise to his glory and his virtue. And that you will use us as good examples to show your love and grace to this world, Lord. Help us as we go through this letter and, and, and in our lives and in each service we have here, Lord, to grow into a richer, more invested knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. And then let that change our lives. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.